0: Welcome to Midas Touch, Legal AF. If it's Saturday, it is Legal AF Live. And if it is Sunday, it is Legal AF. Ben Mycellus here, joined by Michael Popak, the Popokian Michael Popak. How are you doing this weekend? Oh, I'm doing great. I love Saturdays
1: with you. I never thought I'd say that. I love Saturdays, heart. Well, I would myself. say this.
0: I love working on Saturdays, although this doesn't really feel like work. This feels like I, I get to spend Saturday with you, Popak. We get to talk about the legal issues. We get to speak with our community of incredible uh, followers, supporters, fans, friends, really family at this point of legal efforts. And we've been with them now for Um, you know, several months teaching the law. What I like about the progression of the show Popak is that we build on the knowledge that we teach legal afers so some of the earlier points we don't have to go back to like when we talk about just how a complaint works its way through the judicial system you know the processes of what is discovery what is a summary judgment motion versus a motion to dismiss our legal AFers are super bright they know this now and if you're new to the show i would just say go back listen to some of the early legal AFs. Although some of the news topics may have changed, there may be updates, updates, updates. Um, you will be able to learn these key principles of law through our case discussions, wouldn't you say? Popa? Uh, oh,
1: one thousand percent. I know of at least one follower who's gone back and actually binged on the entire catalog of twenty eight or twenty seven past episodes. And, and the nice thing about this, and you're right about the build, Is that when you and i started this in january we talked about it in january i i had a a slight reservation that we wouldn't have enough to talk about every week i'm thinking a half an hour maybe every other week and it's just amazing both that the interest of our followers and listeners motivates us and just the times that we live in I mean, the fact that you and I are able during a week, during a day, even right before we record, are able to find interesting articles, stories and descriptions that you and I can talk about. I mean, you and I on this podcast occupy a lane almost to ourselves among all the other podcasts out there. And there's a lot of podcasts that you and I like as well. And we've been on other podcasts, but I think we occupy uniquely a lane and that lane that we have to ourselves is sort of this litigated politics and the intersection of politics and law in the way that you and I present it from a progressive viewpoint. And it the followers and listeners seem to resonate and vibrate with us in that lane. So we're going to we're going to stay there. We know where the strike zone is. We're going to keep
0: throwing the ball right down the middle. Talking about the strike zone, Popak, I think that gives us An interesting illustration of the law that I wanted to talk about before getting into the news. I am I grew up a New York Met fan. I moved, though, to Los Angeles. Sorry to hear that. (laughs) I grew up, you know, it was a big family experience. My grandfather was a Brooklyn Dodger fan. And so Brooklyn Dodger fans became Met fans. That's how I inherited the New York Mets, uh, the Scarlet M for New York Mets there and lots of frustrating years. But I moved out to California, became a Dodger fan. And while watching the Dodger um, Giants game uh, this past week, the Dodgers won and they'll be in the National League um, finals uh, series. Um, You know, there was a very controversial call at the end of the game about whether or not The Giants batter had a check swing or didn't have a check swing. Um, And the umpire ultimately said that the batter swung. Um, This was in the very end of the game. The Dodgers won the game and celebrated. And everyone said that call, though, you know, it shouldn't have ended like that. You know, when you think about baseball and sports is often a great metaphor for just other aspects of life, it was a human decision by that umpire to make that strike three call there in that critical moment. Now, for all we know, that umpire was not a Dodgers fan. That umpire was calling balls and strikes. And whether you believe that was a human error or the correct call, it was a human decision. So inherently built into systems, as we talk about the legal system, you know there could be human errors. You know, judges try to call balls and strikes and that's the role of judges, but sometimes they don't call it the right way. Um, Just as a matter of human error. However, what we've been talking about on Legal AF is something deeper, something a little bit more insidious. What happens when the umpire is actually a, 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 a Dodger fan? And he's talked about being a Dodger fan his entire life and that he wants the Dodgers to win. And you get to appoint that umpire as your umpire in the game that you're playing. When we talk about our Supreme Court reviews, when we talk about um, decisions that are being made by district courts, I want you to keep in mind that example, because that is what our legal system is. It's not just umpires who call balls and strikes and sometimes get it wrong. It's umpires who are selected through a political system to call the balls and strikes strikes that their political enablers want them to. And too frequently in our system right now, it is fascist leaning. It is anti-democratic. It is anti-women. It is anti-LGBTQ plus. It is anti-humanity.
1: You know know what the problem is? The problem is that you and I are able to in a, I mean, it's unfortunate that we're able to predict as accurately as your and my predictions have been on this show about the results at the appeal level and at the Supreme Court. But the fact that we're able to say we think, and we're usually right, Alito is going to vote this way, Amy Coney Barrett's going to vote that way, Thomas is going to vote this way, we shouldn't be able to do that. We should not be able to sit here and handicap because if blood, if justice were truly blind, which Lady Justice is on every courthouse and every courthouse steps if she was truly blind. Then decisions that were made one to another would not be so easily predicted based on politics. And that is the problem with our system. And that is the veil that we're pulling down from the eyes of our listeners and followers, Is justice, unfortunately, is not blind. It is made by human beings who have been selected for a purpose. And not today, but at another episode, you and I'll talk about the whole confirmation process that's become a sham, especially in the hands of the Republicans, when Supreme Court nominees are put before a, a, a congressional committee and they don't answer a darn thing anymore about how they'll rule, what their political leaning is, what their judicial philosophy is. I mean, if you look at the confirmation hearings from the 70s and 80s, and you compare them to the ones that just happened and the one that happened in a 20 day process for Amy Coney Barrett, she wasn't asked a darn thing and didn't answer a darn thing. Um, And why is that? Because her handlers and her political appointees and president knew how she was going to vote, knew that she was going to be where they wanted her to be on key issues that we're now talking about the aftermath of, like abortion, like same sex marriage, like Uh, sexual autonomy and personal liberty. And that's the problem, because those confirmation hearings, which, again, we'll talk about at length at another time, when probably we're closer to a confirmation hearing, have become um, really an abdication of the responsibility of Congress to find out who is going to be making these key decisions for a lifetime on the Supreme Court.
0: Oh, absolutely. And we talk there about the umpire, um, you know, and you think about, you, you play that out a little further, you know, the security that's there uh, at the stadium who's supposed to, you know, protect the field or protect the players, protect the people. What if they're enabling the scheme as well? And we see that happen here in our system, you know, where you have law enforcement. Um, And law enforcement is not just enforcing laws, but enforcing their views of of white supremacy very frequently, supporting their views of fascism. And, you know, going into uh, a recent story in in our legal news, the January 6th insurrection, many of us suspected that uh, a lot of it was aided and embedded by some bad Capitol police officers. There were great, heroic Capitol police officers, metropolitan police officers who fought for our democracy, who stood there in the face of the bear spray and getting uh, stabbed by American flags. I mean, fire, fire extinguishers to the head, heart fire attacks. extinguishers to the head, you know, with, right. with multiple deaths taking place. But it seemed when you watched it, that a lot of these uh, insurrectionists were kind of just let in. And there was a recent uh, criminal indictment that was handed out to a January 6th Capitol Police officer and where it is alleged that he told an insurrectionist to delete certain photographs to cover up the insurrectionist involvement in January 6th. Is there any bigger breach of trust than that, Popak?
1: No. I mean, and again, I want to just reiterate The vast majority, 95 percent or more of Capitol Police that day were heroes. They're heroes. They protected the Capitol when outmatched, outgunned and outmanned. But there's been enough evidence and video and, and social media postings that there were friendlies on the Capitol Police side that were holding the door open, taking pictures with and taking selfies with the insurrectionists, and that's all been public also. Not one Capitol police officer has lost his job yet because of that. But now we have our first indictment, which reminds us that there are unfortunately bad people inside of law enforcement and inside of our military. I'm hoping that that Lloyd Austin, our defense secretary, goes further with his, um, Policy of rooting out white supremacy within the US military and investigating their social media and getting them out and drumming them out of the Army, Navy, and and other branches of of the armed services. Capitol police have to do the same thing. So Michael Riley, a 25-year veteran of the Capitol Police, who was on K-9 duty bomb sniffing duty actually was part of the bomb sniffing team that found some incendiary devices around the Capitol uh, on, on Jan 6th also took a liking to one of the insurrectionists because in his own words, in his own social media and direct messaging on Facebook, he sympathized with those political views. I got you. I feel the same way. And so what he did is he befriended, I don't know if it's before or during Jan 6, but he certainly befriended one of the um, insurrectionists who is not identified in the indictment. But the media has outed as being Jacob, um, Jacob Hiles, who is a pot smoking fish captain or fisherman um, who literally smoked a joint uh, and celebrated it when he when he uh, made his way through the cap into the capital. He actually Riley reached out through social media on Facebook on the 7th of January and told this fisherman, hey I'm with you politically, but you better delete all your social media and all your videos of you in the Capitol because there's a major investigation going on. I mean, you couldn't make for a better indictment than that was exhibit A of the (laughs) indictment was the acknowledgement that there's a federal investigation going on about the insurrection and you telling somebody to destroy evidence. We call that obstruction. And there's now a two count indictment against Riley and an arrest. And of course, he's been put on permanent leave and eventually be fired from the Capitol Police. But it's scary because, Ben, isn't it? We've always suspected that there were uh, white supremacists, QAnon and other radicals within our armed forces who wear a badge, who take an oath, who wear our gun and are supposed to protect us. But here we have the first, I'm sure not the last of indictments that demonstrate
0: it. Make three observations first. Ninety-five. No. First, ninety-five percent was the number that you gave of the Capitol police officers who you believe were um, heroically fighting. I hope that number is correct. I know that I've seen a lot of Capitol police officers who were heroically fighting. I also saw a lot of Capitol police officers in those videos seemingly pull out the gates and just let people. Uh, run right in. So I don't know if that is entirely scientific too. Uh, pot smoking fishermen is just a. I feel like the polls have like completely reversed. Like, like the this the the Trumpers in their ridicule of what they labeled their parody of what the left was kind of pot smoking like anti-vax free you know that all of a sudden like irresponsible like all the made-up shit that the that the gqp you know used to claim were like liberal things pinko pinko hippie liberals are now are now the most reprehensible disgusting if you really break it down the true like The true we want the government to intervene in all aspects of your life and have Big Brother as a government is nowhere more embodied than every GQP ideology. I mean, they literally want to create a handmaid's tale in the United States of America. So that's your pot smoking fisherman. My third brief observation is I've had lots of cases in my career involving canine officers like this officer, not with these fact patterns. But there's really only two circumstances where you're supposed to use a canine dog. You know, one is like in a chase where someone has like a vi- where someone is a violent offender. They're running away. They have a weapon. That's basically the one way you use a canine dog. The other way you use a canine dog is for sniffing drugs or for sniffing something. That's really it. What a lot of officers, though, do with the canine is they use them as like a weapon. And these canines are lethal um, killing machines and they're trained to kill. So I've had a lot of civil rights cases against police departments across this country where a cop will go right up to a suspect with the dog. They'll shout the command in in German. Um, you know, and they'll usually give a a, a, a a code, yeah. Um, and then the dog will bite the leg, and what often happens is these bites are so vicious and severe. I've had many cases where the victim suffers a pulmonary embolism. Um, you know, gets seriously gets seriously seriously injured, and then often there's a civil rights litigation. Um, that that follows. So those are my three observations there. Popak, here's another historical reference, and you'll see where I'm going with this. The Lewis and Clark Expedition from August 31st to 1803 to September 25th, 1806, was the United States expedition to cross the newly acquired Western portion of the country after the Louisiana Purchase by President Thomas jefferson the bannon and clark expedition is the descent into total trump fascism and trying to overthrow the democracy that was built through presidents like thomas jefferson and others you heard that right stephen bannon and jeffrey clark jeffrey clark a doj lawyer stephen bannon a one-time advisor to the president but was then fired by the president but then went on his fascist tour across the world where he wanted to basically create a new world order of fascists and hoist up. And he's still doing it today with his podcast, but he's the, he wants, he's
1: the, he's the Charles Lindbergh of podcasters.
0: It's, it's really horrific what's going on here. And he's discussed how on January 6th, how he was aiding and abetting the insurrection when he had no official or even unofficial role Um, as far as we know, with the executive branch. But Steve Bannon is claiming an executive privilege about why he shouldn't testify in front of the January 6th Congressional Commission. Um, We also are trying to get, uh, the January 6th Commission is trying to get um, the deposition of Jeffrey Clark as well. Are are these people going to get, you know, are they going to get deposed, Popac? Are they going to get subpoenaed? What's the process here? What's going on?
1: First, I want to say that I have so much trust in you that I had zero idea where the Lewis and Clark thing was going, but I knew that you were going to tie that to this segment of the story. So I just sat back patient, but I was like a, I was like a follower and listener there for that moment. I wasn't sure where we were going, but now I know,
0: you know, and just I, the historical lesson yes, I I embody like it. these little, these little beautiful glimpses. That's, that's why,
1: that's why they pay you the medium bucks for those kind of observations on this show. OK, let me break it down on where we are with the Jan six and the select committee and their orders. So um, they issued a series, three, three waves or three tranches of subpoenas, including the, the big ticket items, the big pelts on the wall. Jeffrey Clark, former uh, uh, deputy attorney general, who was itching for taking over the entire Department of Justice after uh, Barr stepped down in December. It was basically the number one henchman for Donald Trump to do all of his bidding related to trying to overturn the election. Bannon, we've, we've spoken about him literally ad nauseum. Guy named Meadows, Mark Meadows, who was uh, the chief of staff for Trump. Uh, Cash Patel, a guy who led the um, Stop the Steal another QAnon-based rally rally organizer, and Dan Scavino. And they've all been ordered first to produce documents and to appear ultimately for deposition. The depositions in Congress under oath before the select committee was supposed to happen on the 14th and 15th of October. Bannon um, and Meadows and Scavino and Patel. Bannon's lawyer wrote a letter and said, we're not appearing. There seems to be issues of executive privilege, and we're going to sit on the sidelines until until something else happens, which we're going to talk about next, which is what is the next thing that's going to happen? The reality is he doesn't have executive privilege, as you've pointed out, both on our podcast and on the Brothers podcast. The guy at best was a low-level podcaster. <laughs> at the time, he uh, participated in these rallies and in fomenting discontent in order to create the insurrection certainly was not in the White House and would not have been subject to the protections of executive privilege. So that's out. Uh, The others have an argument, but I've heard that or I've read that Meadows, at least, and Scavino are cooperating with the investigators and may end up giving testimony. But the day for Bannon has come and gone and he has dug in on his position that he's not going to testify unless ordered to do so, which brings us to Legal AF Law School, the contempt powers of Congress, which we've talked about on a number of podcasts. But let me just sum up the three ways that they can use their powers. There is an inherent authority of Congress established by the Supreme Court in a case from 1917 that said that Congress, in order to do its work, including investigations, has to have There has to be a repercussion. If you flout the orders of Congress, you can't just go, "Eh, I'm not showing up because then Congress has absolutely no, no, no role, no teeth in the process. So the Supreme Court in making law which we're going to talk about later when we get to the, the Texas abortion developments later tonight, the podcast. The Supreme Court announced what the law was and gave Congress that power. That's the inherent power and authority of Congress on contempt. There's also a statute that you and I haven't talked too much about, which is 2 USC section 192, which makes it a criminal contempt of Congress if someone doesn't appear for testimony and bring documents with them as ordered by Congress. That's where I think we are. Benny Thompson and Liz Cheney, the co-chairs of the committee, have basically said, without quoting the statute, we're exercising our rights under the criminal contempt statute. First step in the process is that there's a vote of the House, the committee and then the House about making uh, finding criminal contempt. Once the House votes and You know, the Democrats have the vote, so this should work once the House votes on criminal contempt. The Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, makes a referral to the Department of Justice. Now, I've seen some followers and listeners worry about Merrick Garland. You know, we have two schools of people that are on our 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 feeds. One thinks Merrick Garland hasn't done a darn thing. And then there's people that sort of fall into my camp and I think a little bit yours, which is be patient. Justice takes time. Uh, overall what the Department of Justice has done under Merrick Garland in all of the cases that he's filed and are investigating is right where we want him to be. I know people would like more and faster, but that's really not the way our Justice Department or a justice system works. So Merrick Garland, it's not it's it's his decision whether to ultimately bring the suit, but not entirely. He has prosecutorial discretion and we'll talk about that and your view of prosecutorial discretion. But it ultimately has to go to a grand jury. That's what the case law says. That's what the statute says. So it would go it would go Speaker of the House referral to the Department of Justice. Department of Justice convenes a grand jury to indict Bannon on criminal contempt of Congress. That's all on the criminal side. The Congress can still and the committee can still go on the civil side and go to court for civil contempt related to the failure to appear. I think they're definitely going the criminal route, and you and I have predicted that in the, in the past. I think the vote's gonna happen in the next week or so. The Referral Department of Justice, grand jury probably kick around for a month or two. In the meantime, Bannon may see the writing on the wall and come in from the cold and testify, or he's gonna be a martyr because it makes him more money and makes Trump happy. And just, you know, when he, even when he's indicted, he's still fighting. I think the others, at least one or two of them, I don't know if it's Scavino, I don't know if it's Meadows, but one of them is gonna be, or Clark, one of them is gonna be testifying. They're not all gonna to wait to see if they get indicted.
0: Agree, you asked me my view on prosecutorial discretion, um, you know, to give that just a quick definition, it's the longstanding authority of an agency charged with enforcing the law to decide where to focus its resources and whether or how to enforce or not to enforce the law against an individual. And let's be clear, but no pun intended, but that definition does not really give it justice. And I say no pun intended because that's the whole game right there. The decision whether to prosecute or not prosecute is the decision of a person, a group of people where their priorities are. And so While the Department of Justice is, in theory, an independent branch of of government, it's not supposed to be um, influenced untoward by the executive branch. It's supposed to have its own set forth its own policy and not be um influenced or interfered with one of the issues with the trump administration was that bill barr was trump's justice department they were trump's private lawyer they were not enforcing the law they were acting as the trump law firm but that was really done at a very kind of obvious specific and directed level but at the highest level the decisions what law enforcement and that's just not at the federal that could be federal state local where prosecutors make the decisions, I'm going to prosecute this person, I'm going to prosecute this company, that very decision, we, we go back to the Dodgers analogy, they're creating the game in the first place. They're saying whether or not the Dodgers are even going to play the San Francisco Giants and there's going to be a game. And then we go, well, who's going to judge the game? And then we go to our other analysis of who the umpire is and who the judges.
1: T- Take take it further. I I mean, I like baseball. I mean, I'm not a Dodgers fan, although I'm enjoying the series The it would be like the umpires getting together, as you said, to decide whether there's going to be a game, but also deciding how many players and which players each side could have Dodgers. You get seven players. Um, we're on the other side, you guys get all, you know, 23 players and, and Dodgers, you get to play with two pitchers. The other side doesn't. And because it's that decision making process by prosecutors, whether to decline to prosecute, which is called declination or to prosecute and how and which counts. And and unfortunately, although there is a body of case law that that limits what a prosecutor can or can't do and requires them to do um, to give a, a, a defendant in a criminal case justice and do process, prosecutors play games no pun intended with that all the time. We're not going to give you that witness statement because we, we think it's work product. Um, we, we're not going to give you that exculpatory evidence that would help your case because eh, we lost it. We couldn't find it. Um, you know, and, the, and then who's who is injured by that? The criminal defendant who is supposed to stand before the court and blind justice with a presumption of innocence. But the prosecutor's got his big fat or her big fat thumb on the scale.
0: Here's another comparison, and and you think about the TV show Mad Men or any of those kind of ad agency shows where, uh, you know, the slick marketing exec or ad exec goes into the office um, and pitches why their uh, campaign, you know, should ultimately be the campaign for the product. That's what's going on in our legal system Every day you have a group of government lawyers who go into a room or rooms with their bosses or with their committees and pitch it. Hey, here's why we need to go after this company. Hey, here's why we should go after this person. Here's why we should go. This is a great case the same way, you know, this is a great jingle. That's what's going on. And then there's a decision. Hey, we should make that decision to prosecute or not prosecute. And you want to, yeah, Papa. Yeah. And, and
1: that pitch is also going on at the justice side by clerks at the Supreme Court and federal level who are pitching positions. Sometimes the judge says. You know, on weighty, weighty issues like abortion that we're going to talk about later, usually the judge will sit down with his clerks and say, this is where I want to end up on this decision. Now, go write the opinion for me to look at or they write their own opinion. But you and I deal not just with weighty constitutional issues in our day to day practice, but we're still in front of federal and state judges on a regular basis. And a lot of times, and I know this from people I didn't personally clerk, but I know this from people who did clerk and they say, look. The judge didn't give me any instructions about which way he wanted that case to come out. He led it to me. So clerk justice is going on where the clerks who were right out of law school are writing a fair amount of what passes as jurisprudence and justice in this country.
0: Absolutely. And I want to remind everybody before we move on to the next topic, just why Cash Patel is such an important witness um, and why. We were so close to the brink of like a actual overthrow of our government. And that's actually what was being planned behind the scenes. So Cash Patel, he was made the chief of staff to acting secretary of defense, Christopher Miller. If everyone recalls, Donald Trump dismissed the actual secretary of defense, Mark Esper, um, for apparently being unlo- disloyal to Trump. But Trump was trying to stack. His defense department believing that that was a way that he could go about uh, potentially having a, a coup. A lot of people believe that Cash Patel, who was kind of Trump's personal pick there, was really the front man, um, was real. Actually, that Miller was the front man and that Cash Patel was behind the scenes calling the shots and Miller was just a figurehead who was pretending to basically be the acting secretary of defense. But that Kash Patel was really the one calling the shots. And that one source who was a high level source at the Department of Defense said that Patel was probably the most influential person in U.S. government on matters of national security at that time. A guy you've is,
1: never a guy you and I before, like recently,
0: never heard of. And let's remember, um, during those critical hours, of January 6th, Uh, Miller, the Secretary of Defense there, the Acting Secretary of Defense, um, approved the deployment of National Guards from neighboring states to reinforce the D.C. National Guards at 4.41 p.m. That was three hours after the Capitol Police said they were being overrun and two hours after city officials had asked for assistance. And so that failure to even call the National Guard on that day, can trace back to the removal of Esper as Secretary of Defense, the appointment of Miller, Miller being the front man for Cash Patel, who was his chief of staff, but who was running it all. That's that why the That was so Kash- good.
1: That was, Ben, that was so good. I was on the edge of my chair because all of those dominoes, all those links, which all, of course, run back to Trump, is, are so important. And, and, and you know your eyes can gloss over when you read all this stuff online or in newspapers. One of the things that you and I do, hopefully well, is synthesize all of this information and all these data feeds that come into us and come into you through Midas Touch and me through working so closely with Midas Touch and being attuned during the week, because I know I'm doing the show with you at the end of the week, and I know our listeners and followers have, a, have now a reasonable expectation and have set a high bar for us. Which we have to—I feel—we have to jump over. I feel like it's a high bar that goes up a foot every week. But uh, I work hard, and so do you, to be able to synthesize this information. So what we just said is that's a a a the one of the top three members of the administration who's confirmed by the U.S. Senate, the defense secretary, was replaced by an acting secretary, who I don't think was confirmed. Who was, a, who was a straw, who was a straw again, straw person, for the real power, who was an unconfirmed, in other words, didn't go through a confirmation process, appointed chief of staff. So we have a puppet government. We have a puppet government where the, the, the positions of power required by the Constitution have been undermined and hollowed out and replaced with bureaucrats who are puppets for a
0: president who's basically gone insane. And then on January six, people said, well, where's the National Guard? Where's anyone? No, I mean, that was yeah. all planned and, and choreographed for it to happen that way. Fortunately, it failed because Trump is a gigantic loser in everything that he does. But if he was a competent person, who had the ability to really plan through it in a significant way, and you didn't have the shaman and losers there, but you had, right. you know, a, a little bit of a different style of militia, which is what they're trying to build now. The results could have been very different, and even then, the results were incredibly serious. And you know, when that insurrection fortunately was put down, but it was a full-fledged insurrection.
1: So, so wait before before you leave, though, let's tie it back to Jan. Six Committee. That's why the work of the of the of the special select committee about what happened on January 6th is so, so important because if we believe in a system and a democracy that's whose foundation are three co-equal branches of government and checks and balances, we just had a president who disregarded the three branches of government in every way, shape and form, giving orders to his Justice Department to do his bidding and other things, undermining and hollowing out all the institutions and really testing really testing in a way that's never been tested, at least in the in the modern era, the checks and balances that were put in by founding fathers, who who I think anticipated that we could have a crazy sitting in the White House. But look how he tested this, the guardrails of democracy that are in place. And now the reason for the committee is not to do the political bidding. Everyone's like, oh, it's Democrats going after Republicans. It's not. It is a committee whose, in, whose institutional and historic role is to find out what happened on January 6th and to make recommendations and changes in the law so it never happens
0: again. Popak, Trump is being deposed this week. Finally. Uh, finally being <laughs> deposed. You know, it's not exactly the... If I had to rank the cases involving Trump where I'd want him to be deposed from uh, like one being the number one I want him to be deposed in to 100 being the least one I want him to be deposed in, Um, put it this way. I'll take him being deposed in any case, but let's just say I'd probably put this in the 90s, if not 100, because at the end of the day, this is not a case that is going to have any significant constitutional ramifications. At the end of the day, this is a personal injury case um, that uh, in the run-up to the 2016 election, there were protesters in front of Trump Tower. Trump had private security. The private security allegedly roughed up um, some of the protesters. The protesters sued everybody, including Trump. Um, They tried to take Trump's deposition during the presidency. Trump was able to prevent that deposition from taking place and delay it while he was a sitting president. Now that he's no longer a sitting president, that deposition uh, is 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 able to go forward. It happened before he was the president. So there are no issues or claims about executive privilege or anything like that. Some may say, well, why is he getting deposed here and not the Lafayette Square where they harmed peaceful protesters and attacked peaceful protesters? Uh, according to the Justice Department and even the Merrick Garland Justice Department, we've talked about this before, that the Lafayette Square situation is at least being construed even by the current Justice Department. I, I don't really agree with this one, but I see what they're saying, that the uh, one of the acts of a president is to address the. Um, Uh, issues such as protests. And that's possibly why it falls under the gambit of executive privilege while in the course and scope of being an executive. We could set that aside for another day, or you can go back and listen to previous podcasts where we analyze that decision by the Department of Justice. But here, private citizen running for election, security beats up people, Uh, the Trump organization's being sued. They want the deposition of Donald Trump.
1: So a few observations, one of them is going to be downright. Mysalsian. My salcyon, my forget my salient. Yeah. You said at the last podcast and you were right that my sort of minimizing the lawsuit with the Supreme Court related to the flower arranger that it did. It wasn't just about flower arrangement. It was about broader constitutional issues. And that was the gateway drug to get into that. Uh, I'm paraphrasing. Yep. This deposition, and this is where you and I can talk a little bit about in our careers, which I think people like to hear about, while on its face, the topic, the subject matter of the lawsuit is as you've laid it out, a 2015, again, for our listeners and followers, this lawsuit was filed six years ago. It was stayed as Ben just described, as you've just described, because of his being a sitting president, but now is up and running again in Bronx, in a trial level court. Qu- even though we call it the Supreme Court in New York, to remind everybody that is a trial level. That is not the New York Supreme Court. The highest court in New York is the Court of Appeals. Just to add
0: confusion, confusion, right? Just
1: to add confusion. Let's call in
0: New York the Supreme Court the Court of Appeals and the trial court the Supreme Court. I mean,
1: a lot of courts that you and I practice in call their trial court some version of superior or circuit In Florida it's circuit in California. I know it's, I think it's superior. Superior. Yeah. In in New York it's Supreme Uh, just for confusion. So we have got a Bronx judge who said, yeah, you're given the deposition now about a Mexican American demonstrators who were, who were injured by bouncers hired by Trump at Trump tower um, and their bodyguards. Um, But that's what it is on its face. But how many times have you and I gone into a deposition and are able to explore because it's not only what's relevant, it's what is reasonably calculated to lead to the discovery of relevant information. That's the standard and courts. And I think this judge in particular is going to have a is going to give a wide berth and wide latitude to the person asking the questions. So I don't think it's just going to be what did you know, Mr. Former Mr. President about, you know, Mr. Trump, about what happened in your bodyguards and negligent retention, negligent supervision. I think they're able to get into a broader set of topics just the way they were able to get into it with Clinton, who sort of stumbled into the Monica Lewinsky testimony in a place where he didn't think he was going to have to give that testimony. What do you think, Ben? Don't don't you think, especially with this judge, that Trump may have to answer questions that aren't fitting in the box of this particular day in front of Trump Tower?
0: So let's break it down for our listeners and viewers at the trial. If a trial takes place for the the evidence to come in, the evidence has to be relevant to the case and it has to be admissible, relevant evidence. And there's a whole analysis there about whether it's um, probative value, even if it is relevant evidence, if it's probative value um, is outweighs any undue prejudice that the information could potentially cause a jury. But to make this very simple for our listeners and viewers, at the trial, relevance matters. Prior to trial, at the discovery phase, because you are obtaining evidence which may be relevant at trial, you are allowed to ask questions about things that aren't directly or necessarily on its face relevant, but that could be relevant because how else could you find out the information that would be relevant if you're not even allowed to ask the questions? Now, in the discovery phase, there are also safeguards that are put in place so that people don't go on just untoward, we like to say, fishing expeditions, just asking random questions that have nothing to do with it. So if the questions are completely outside the scope and bounds and you know, here in the deposition, if they start asking about You know, January 6th, for example, I think Trump's lawyer would object and say this is not reasonably calculated. There could be an argument that it shows a pattern and practice of violence towards individuals and that the Trump supports. That's the argument you would make as a plaintiff. You would say he has a pattern and practice of being violent towards people, so I should allow it. Ultimately, Trump may decide not to answer that question It may go to a judge who may compel him. Can I give you an example
1: on. on your point? How about all the times Trump stood up during campaigns and when people protested him, he would point to them and tell the crowd, get that guy out of here, rough him up, beat him up. I mean, there's a number of cases where he fomented potential bodily violence against people at his rallies that were protesting against him. I would use that in the cross. I'm going to
0: give you the mycelian prediction here of what's going to (laughs) happen. Here's what's going to happen. Um, Trump is not going to answer any questions other than the questions that directly relate to that day. And for that day, he's going to answer, I don't know. I had nothing to do with the security. I don't know. There's then going to be a motion to compel that's going to be filed and a motion for sanctions. And we are going to be talking about that on a future legal AF. And so just to Uh, summarize what I just said and what that meant. If someone does not respond to the question at a deposition, if their lawyer instructs them not to answer the question, which at a deposition is supposed to be circumscribed to very limited and finite circumstances where there's a privilege claim, or if it's completely, completely outside the bounds, Um, but then a lawyer is supposed to go in when you're representing uh, someone who's being deposed, and there are questions that are completely outside the bounds, Supposed to then go in and ask the judge for a protective order um, to limit the scope on certain questions would be one of the proper procedures you would take. But I think that's what's going to happen. I don't think he's going to answer the questions. And then we'll see if the judge compels Popak for those questions that you just said. Um, to be answered. Popak, I want to talk briefly about AG1, Athletic Greens. I have it right here in front of me, and I am loving Athletic Greens. Today's program of Legal AF is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the health and wellness company that makes comprehensive daily nutrition really, really simple. I love this drink. It you know, one of the things that I had before I got AG1, I'd have all of my um, like, like pre-workout pills and post-workout pills and the vitamin C and the vitamin D. And like, if you look at my shelf, I have like just a cabinet of all these different are you showing your things?
1: are you showing your biceps to the oh, audience no, tonight not, i'm not showing uh, okay.
0: the i'm not showing the biceps but right. you know with all the stressors that come with the life and the lifestyles we live maintaining effective nutritional habits that give our body the nutrients we need with our busy schedules, but sometimes poor sleep, trying to balance exercise, our environment, work stress is difficult. And I like to try to curate for myself, like what I think the ideal regimen is, but I just want to make it easy. And AG one athletic greens has made it super easy. It's just one tasty scoop of AG one contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin multi-mineral probiotic green superfood blend, and more, in one convenient daily serving. the special blend of high-quality bioavailable ingredients in a scoop, in one scoop of AG1 work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, support energy and focus, aid with gut health and digestion, and support a healthy immune system, effectively replacing multiple products, or pills with one healthy, delicious drink, and when I drink AG One, I feel super, super good for the day. Popak, have you tried this?
1: Yeah, I have. I, I I was not a green juice person before this became a sponsor. I'll be frank. I mean, I did other things, as you've you've identified, and and trying to get in one efficient package and one tasty drink because because they're not all tasty out there. This one is you know, all the things that I need. And, you know, you and I, we've, we've joked about our age gap, our age difference. And by the way, I, I'm not, I'm okay with the fact that you're much younger than me. Uh, but from my perspective, I need other things that may not fit for you, but this is calculated in a way that it really just crosses all, all age, uh, age brackets. For me, I like the pre-prebiotic probiotic and that balance of minerals and vitamins that in order to, to replace this one package, I'd have to, like you said, I'd have to have an entire kitchen full of pills and pill holders and, and uh, powders and all sorts of things. And I can just set it and forget it. I I did it. I did it today, not as a replacement for breakfast. I had a, a light breakfast earlier today, but I, I had the, you know, the server come out and bring me a glass of water and I just mixed it up right there. People were actually watching me. I was on Madison Avenue near my apartment. And, you know, then the rest of that morning, I just kind of, um, I took this in. I always feel great after it, which, uh, which is a nice surprise because like I said, I was not a green juice person or a juicer at all. And I really like the way this tastes. It has a, a, a really good like umami earthy taste that I found really attractive. So
0: um, I'm glad they're our sponsor. That's the popok endorsement right there. Nothing bigger, better than that. It's lifestyle friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy free or gluten free and contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything while keeping it tasting good. So join the movement of athletes, life leads moms, dads, rookies, first timers and everyone in between taking ownership of their daily health and focusing on the nutritional products they really need. And the simplest manner possible. That's essential nutrition. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune-supporting free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. If you visit athleticgreens.com slash legal AF today, hear that, go to athleticgreens.com Dot com slash LegalAF today. Get your free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs. Again, simply visit AthleticGreens.com slash LegalAF to take control of your health and give AG1 a try that's some health upgrades now let's go to some updates updates some SCOTUS Supreme Court of the United States when people say why do we say SCOTUS Supreme Court of the United States that's what it stands for some SCOTUS updates and let's talk about the Boston bomber update Popak the Boston bomber sentenced to the death penalty in the district court proceeding um, uh, the younger brother Yes. Uh, and then the, and that's who we're talking about here. And then uh, the Court of Appeals, the First Circuit overturned the District Court's ruling. Uh, the First Circuit said that um, additional information should have been provided to the jury. Remember, I'll let you explain it, Popak, but as we go back, remember what I said there, you know, that when we were talking about evidence that goes in front of the jury. Um, we're talking about giving relevant evidence in a jury and trial, but sometimes what we have to determine also. Is that relevant evidence? Evidence too prejudicial? Would that relevant evidence, even if it is relevant, just confuse the shit out of people so they have no clue what they're talking about? Does it create, for example, all these other issues that create trials within trials, so the jury can't even focus on the issues um, that are at stake in a trial? Um, and then the Supreme Court heard oral arguments on this Boston bomber uh, case. And the Supreme Court seemed very skeptical of the Court of Appeals overturning the district court. It seems like the death sentence will be you know, reinstated. Um, I think regardless of where you stand on the death penalty, I'll just tell you where I stand on the death penalty so people know I'm against the death penalty. I'm against the death penalty generally in the United States. I think that um, in a civilized society, no matter how heinous the crimes that are committed. Ideally, you would say, hey, a death penalty should just be used in this circumstance. But remember, legal AF, all these discussions tie back together. We talked about prosecutorial discretion, and oftentimes what one person believes to be heinous, another person may believe to not pursue a death penalty in a certain circumstance. And of course, with the Innocence Project and other groups that have done incredible work there, we've known that there have been serious and significant significant systemic issues relating to the death penalty where people wrongfully accused have been killed by our government, which to me is a horrible outcome and if a system is that imperfect and it's resulting in the deaths of innocent people we need to rethink that piece of our system so that's just yeah, my view, but uh,
1: yeah well let, let me let me continue there then we'll get into the the case of Zakort Sarnayev who's the younger brother the older brother having been uh, successfully apprehended and i think killed uh, after the Boston Marathon bombing which killed three people and maimed and injured hundreds more, including children. The, my, my approach to the death penalty decision, which is a personal decision about where I'm going to be on the spectrum is the same as yours. I've always used, when I've had this debate with friends and family, I've always come down to two things because I'm in the business, I'm in the law. I understand that the law and the everything that you've described today on this podcast with me, prosecutorial discretion, um, Uh, The in the disproportionate impact on minorities, um, how juries see black and brown and other people of color in the process, that judicial process, as much as I would like it to be Lady Justice is blind, is really a gray process that is impacted with thumbs on scales by the amount of money that defendants have to spend the wealth by disparities between rich and poor by what color the person is and what the jury composition is and what evidence is brought in or not brought in during a trial. I cannot allow me personally a death penalty, which is a finality black and white ending to come from such a gray process. And to your point, in order to support the death penalty, people have to be willing to accept that innocent people will die under the death penalty if it's in place. If you're okay with that, if you're okay with one or more innocent people, because that's what the Innocence Project has proven, dying through the death penalty because the government made a mistake, then continue to support the death penalty. If morally and ethically you can't live with that, then you can't have lethal injection and other ways of death penalty be a part of our society. So I agree with you on the Supreme Court case. And I think the reason you and I talked about bringing it up today, even though it's not directly in the lane of litigated politics, it's important for us to teach another chapter in legal AF law school, which is um, the the criminal jury process, um, what happens on appeal, evidence that's let in, instructions that are given to the by the judge to the jury in order to do their job and and all of that. So what's the lesson for today? Um, The first uh, circuit, which is the circuit in the Boston area that sits over Massachusetts, threw out the conviction that the jury had found of Tsarnaev, finding that there were at least two errors in their view, and those errors were so fundamental um, that they were reversible errors, as we like to call it in the appellate world. And one error was the First Circuit didn't like the fact that the judge didn't allow the um, lawyers for the defense to evaluate through a questionnaire and question and answers the potential jury and their exposure to media reports about the Boston Marathon bombing um, before the jury selection. And the second one that the First Circuit was not happy about and found to be reversible error was Sarnayev's lawyers not being able to bring in factually the argument that the older brother, the one who died, the older brother was really the person responsible for the bombing and had participated in a triple homicide, not convicted, not proven, but that that they had evidence that he had participated in a triple homicide, hoping that in the penalty phase the jury in coming up with whether death penalty or not death penalty would have taken that into consideration and gone lighter on the younger brother. And the trial judge said, we're not trying the case of the dead brother maybe killing three other people. We're here on basically your client and I'm not letting that evidence in. And the first circuit said, no, nah, that should have came in too. So now having thrown out the conviction, it goes up to the Supreme Court where the prosecutors are now asking the US Supreme Court to reinstate the conviction. And then, so there was an oral argument just this week. And this is what you and I are trying to determine from oral argument, where all nine of the justices ask questions. And they're all, and right now, all nine are asking questions, including Clarence Thomas, which is unusual. And and trying, you and I are trying to determine from the questions that are asked and how hard they are beating up one side or the other, what the ultimate ruling is going to be but the the takeaway from the oral argument is that it looks like the the majority of the Supreme Court is not buying the argument that that these are re, that these are errors that were so fundamental that they are they're reversible. It looks like they set aside almost immediately the argument about the media. It looks like the Supreme Court, including the liberal justices, the ones on the left side of the aisle, like Kagan, like like Breyer, they're not that concerned that the that the media, uh, questionnaire didn't go out to the jury about have you seen news reports The the entire oral argument, it was about 90 minutes, was really centered on whether Tsarnaev should have been able to bring in the evidence of the triple homicide by the brother. And it was Kagan and Breyer, the, what we call the liberal wing, who seemed to be the most um, in the most uh, position of believing that that should not have uh, come in. It was okay that the trial judge didn't let it in because they didn't want to have a trial within a trial and ultimately on facts that couldn't be proven. It, it, it was more than a rumor, but less than a conviction that the older brother participated in a triple homicide. And they thought that was just too confusing for the jury. And they were there for one purpose. And that was on Sar- Sarayev. So I would not be surprised that they come back and say, reinstate the conviction and and the death penalty ruling. And then we have that other issue about the death penalty being imposed.
0: So we take the analogy we've used about baseball you know, the district court proceeding, in this case, the murder trial or the initial lawsuit or the initial, you know, case, whether it's criminal or civil, takes place at the district court or the superior court at a New York state. It's called the Supreme Court. Um, but then after that, you basically are supposed to get the like an instant replay in a way. You know, and that's going to the court of appeals, the circuit court or a court of appeals to review the findings of what happened at the court below. And what's not what doesn't happen at the court of appeal or the Supreme Court, there isn't a new trial. There isn't new evidence that's presented. It's supposed to look back at the proceeding that took place at the lower court and determine if the judge properly applied the law. Um, if the evidence that was supposed to come in came in, and if the evidence that was supposed to be excluded was excluded, and was the decision that was ultimately rendered consistent with the law, or were there any egregious errors? Now, in that replay at the next step, there are different standards of review that are applied, whether you're supposed to review the underlying proceeding, the district court proceeding Like from scratch, like you look at it, you make your own decision. Um, That's called de novo review, like just a new review. You look at those facts, and a and a court of appeals makes its own decision. Says I disagree with that, Um, or is there another standard that's applied by the court of appeals that looks at a lower court and says, did that lower court judge? Did they abuse their discretion? Um, Did they engage in conduct? that um you know was troubling or problematic or so inconsistent with the law that we need to step in or should we just basically allow the district court ruling to stand um because even if it was even if there were errors that were made the errors at the end of the day were small errors and and that's not our job to correct those types of errors and didn't have a significant impact but in theory That's what's supposed to happen. But you get court of appeals judges, and we're going to talk about a little bit with the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal, who come in, who are also appointed, who have ideological beliefs, who are political appointees, and they look at the replay. And rather than calling the balls and strikes and or saying that the underlying umpire called the balls and strikes, they want to play an entirely new game. (laughs) <laughs> they want to change the game. They don't. They, they they don't care what the they don't care that the analysis was this incredibly co- coherent constitutional analysis. They will fight and struggle to find ways to overturn a ruling where everybody sees the ball and the strike being called as it should. As we segue there, Popak into uh, the updates on the Texas. Abortion law, which are working its way, anti abortion law, which is working its way into the Supreme Court and anti child bearing personal law, anti women law, call it everything that you want to call it, but it is um, taking away a person's right to choose in that state, attacking women. It's vile, vicious, hateful, horrible law that's, that's there in, uh, in, in Texas. But let's talk briefly about this Kentucky. Um, case Popak yeah. that's in this that, that's in the Supreme Court where there was oral argument and the Supreme Court appears to be leaning to allowing a Kentucky attorney general to intervene to support a law that would ban in the second trimester the main um, way that an abortion takes place, the, 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 the main uh, function of how abortions take place. Maybe talk about that.
1: Yeah. The, and it's interesting because it's a yet another abortion case that the Supreme Court will be hearing. There's going to be three or four of them. We've got the Mississippi pre viability abortion case, which is sort of this red letter case that's just looming out there, that's gonna be heard in December. And the question that that you and I have, and for our viewers and followers and listeners is, which if any of these other cases dealing with the fundamental right of a woman to choose, constitutional right of a woman to choose, are gonna be heard in advance of December? Or are they gonna be joined together and all heard in December. So the Kentucky case is is supremely fascinating for a number of political and legal reasons. On the political front, you have a Democratic governor, Andy Beshear, who used to be the state's attorney general, who has decided that the district court, having ruled that the ban in Kentucky on second trimester abortions, so we've got pre-viability, abortions. We've got second trimester abortions. We've got this bullshit thing in Texas, which they call the fetal heartbeat, which is which is none of that, neither fetal nor heartbeat, all coming together about the constitutionality of a woman's right to choose. But in Kentucky, you've got a Democratic governor who, after he got elected, said, you know what? The district court, having ruled in the favor of ban of, of um, outlawing that ban, finding that ban to be unconstitutional. I'm good with that. We don't need to have an appeal on it. And then the attorney, the new attorney general, who's a Trumper, who appeared at the Republican National Committee convention and gave a speech who replaced Andy Bashir, the governor, as attorney general, he's tried to intervene and said, no, I want to I want to represent the rights of Kentucky even though my governor doesn't want me to. And I should be on the other side of the argument so that the appeal is not just mooted by the fact the governor has walked away from the appeal. He can't walk away from the appeal. This is the argument. I, as the attorney general, and of course, I'm Republican. I get to make the argument. So this was an oral argument at the Supreme Court as to whether the attorney general could intervene over the objection of his governor to continue to prosecute the appeal on behalf of the state of Kentucky or not. And just as a matter of facts, I found this fascinating. Ben, do you know how many licensed abortion clinics there are in the state of Kentucky, the entire state? I'm going to guess four. One, there is one licensed abortion clinic in the entire state of Kentucky. Okay. So this just shows you how important, important this issue is, because no matter what corner of Kentucky you live in, if you want an abortion, you got to go find that one. And 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 that's why fundamental rights can be warped by state legislatures and other other events, even though there's a constitutional right on the books to the right of an abortion. Kentucky only saw fit to open one this entire time to service the needs of its of its uh, constituents. It's just it's just totally crazy. Based on my reading of this hour or so oral argument and including the liberal wing, I think they're going to allow the attorney general to intervene. They're going to keep the appeal alive and and the Supreme Court's going to be dealing with whether second trimester abortions are uh, constitutional or not. What do you think?
0: Well, it's all headed towards uh, this December oral argument. And the decision that's going to be made out of that uh, out, out of that case that we've been talking about for some time, and it is a direct challenge to Roe v. Wade. Um, you know, even these cases, the SBA Texas case, we're talking about it right now. But it seems that the Fifth Circuit is really just putting it on a course where it's going to be linked, regardless with um, the Supreme court's December case. Um, and, you know, I think as, as, as you and I have predicted, um, I think that there will either be a complete reversal of Roe v. Wade by this current Supreme court or a 80% of the way there, um, kind of ruling that doesn't completely abolish Roe v. Wade but empowers and enables states to do the types of things that Kentucky wanted to do and Texas wanted to do and try to slice the line between allowing states to make good faith determinations um, about laws that are necessary. This is what the Supreme Court language would be, not my language. You know That would be kind of necessary to balance the issues of fetal heartbeat viabilities with the constitutional right to choose. And, you know, cause the Supreme court, I don't think you'll see a ruling that just literally says we will overrule Roe v. Wade and it's unconstitutional, but I think the effect of it will be to create confusion and chaos in the space with the effective result of overturning.
1: Well, Roe well. I, I think, and then we'll, I know we're going to turn to Texas, which is really important because we've had two developments this week in Texas, one just, just a day or so ago, the, the, the majority opinion on Roe v. Wade, I agree, is not going to uh, on on the new cases about Roe v. Wade is not going to overturn completely Roe versus Wade. But th- I'm uh, I'm I'm sad to say this. I'm reasonably confident that they're going to find five votes to. Um, hamstring it and gut it in a way that it just removes the constitutional right almost altogether. And they'll have a majority vote of five. And then they'll have these concurrences where Alito and Thomas, who have been waiting for you know 20 years or longer for Thomas to finally get to um, overturn Roe versus Wade. It's like their life mission for whatever reason. Well, we know why with Thomas, because he's got a, a, a slightly um, off center uh, to say the least, wife who's very public about her her political views, so we know where he he sits. They're going to write concurrences that you know um, future Republican right wing lawyers are going to cite um, about the press the precedent that's been set here, and you know this thing's just going to go on generationally for for a long period of time, but. I agree with you, whether it's the December oral argument on the Mississippi case. That's Dobbs v.
0: Jackson Women's Health Organization.
1: Right. Or it's the Mississippi or it's the Texas emergency Supreme Court appeal from the Fifth Circuit that we're going to talk about next. They are going to have to deal the Supreme Court and grapple with the constitutional construct of Roe versus Wade precedent that they've already set scientific viability and all of these other things that have come together and make a definitive ruling one way or the other. They are not taking these cases in order to leave people confused about the Supreme Court's pronouncement on this key constitutional issue. They are going to make a pronouncement that will be the law of the land. And it's just not going to be something that you and I and our progressive followers are going to find appealing.
0: Right. And to me, whether you're progressive, conservative, liberal, Democrat, Republican, you know, at the end of the day, we should support a person's right to choose period. End of story. You know, the government has no place making that decision for women or childbearing persons. It's that simple period End stop. And if you think that that is the role, of a government. Uh, I think there is something incredibly wrong with your construction and view of what the government's supposed to
1: do. You can go to Saudi Arabia. There's plenty of Muslim countries that would welcome you.
0: You Absolutely. Popak. So let's talk about SB eight the anti-women childbearing person, handmaid's bounty hunter law. We talked about the 130. Well, that fit on
1: a t-shirt. That was a very long explanation of SBA, but accurate.
0: Words don't describe it and don't do it justice. And sometimes I try to find the words to describe the horror of it. And then as I say it, and then I hear what I say, I'm like, those words did not do it justice. Um, So, so, you know, whatever. But um, we talked about, on the last legal AF, we analyzed the judge's 113-page ruling in the district court. It was in the Western District of Texas. That's uh, it sits in Austin. You you joked about how you know Austin is the what you describe it as the Greenwich, Greenwich Vill- the Greenwich Village of Texas, and, and and we fairly predicted where. that ruling was going to go and it was consistent with the Constitution. It quoted Roe v. Wade, it it quoted Casey. It did this extensive analysis um, and an injunction was issued uh, against SB8, preventing SB8 from being effective, from stopping that law from taking place and allowing the right to choose to continue to take place in Texas. Immediately after the district court, 113 page, ruling the fifth circuit court of appeals um, issued an emergency ruling which stopped the enforcement of the injunction it stayed the injunction pending further arguments before the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, meaning that the injunction in the district court, which stopped the law from taking place, that that injunction would go away. In other words, the Texas law could continue, um, which prevents the right to choose. And so the status quo was Texas, which passed SB-8 into law, remained in law, and the district court's ruling was not in effect. But as we said on the last legal AF, that the fifth circuit was going to have a more fulsome review and issue a more fulsome <laughs> order. And they, this
1: one was a full page.
0: This right. The other one was half a page, right? This one was a full page um, and the full page kept the status quo pending a full um, a more fulsome appeal on the issue, but kept in place SBA and Popak. We predicted it.
1: Yes, it all comes down to Judge Ho, H-O, who is one of the three judges out of 17 at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which covers states like Texas and Louisiana. It actually sits in New Orleans. And uh, it's the same panel of three, one Obama, uh, one Clinton, one Trump, one Bush appointee, Ho being the uh, Trump appointee, a former solicitor general for the state of Texas who, and no, I'm sure no shock to the Department of Justice either, even after full briefing, decided that they would not stay the case while they did what they quoted to be an expedited appeal in front of, I think this, I don't know if it's the same panel as just reviewed the stay, or it's definitely the same panel that is reviewing the earlier Pittman ruling from the summer that did not involve the Department of Justice, but also went after SB-8 is being unconstitutional, which are sort of being joined together at the Fifth Circuit. But the Department of Justice, speaking of circuits, is gonna short circuit all of this, as you and I predicted, and is going on an emergency appeal directly to the US Supreme Court. The difference between this one, this fast track to the US Supreme Court, I think, and the earlier ones over the summer when the Supreme Court was not in session, is that this Supreme Court is in session, All nine justices are back from their summer holidays and all their clerks are in and they're holding oral argument. So what I think is going to happen with this one is the Department of Justice is going to file their appeal probably this coming week. Supreme Court is going to take it up on a fast emergency application. I don't think that they're going to wait until December. I think they're going to rule now on a full briefing this time, not not shadow docket, full briefing and even oral argument, expedited oral argument before they rule and to bring our followers and listeners, to, you know, fully to the, to the meat of the course here for Legal AF today. The standard that the Supreme Court is going to um, apply to determine whether the stay was properly an, a, uh, not put in place by the Fifth Circuit is the same prongs that we use as an analysis for injunctions. Will the Department of Justice likely succeed on the merits of proving that the underlying law is unconstitutional? Do the balance of equities tip in their favor? And with the government, the balance of equities always, always tips in their favor, in the favor of the, public, of, the, of the public. So the fundamental thing that the Supreme Court's gonna determine under the stay issue is whether the merits of the constitutionality of the underlying case. Can a state delegate to people Improperly, the ability to violate the Constitution and its most fundamental principles, which are the right of a woman to choose or not. That is how Pittman has framed this, which is perfect, and it is what the department—it's the battlefield upon which the Department of Justice is going to is going to do battle with the Supreme Court. Now, there was one—I don't know if you caught this, Ben. There was one fascinating filing uh, or brief argument that Texas put in uh, it to the Fifth Circuit. Did you catch what they said about the Supreme Court and opinions and precedent? Did you see? Yeah, that? but I
0: think that wasn't from the state of Texas. I think that was an amicus brief in support of Texas. But I, I but yeah, they yeah. said that the Supreme Court's opinions are just that their opinions and they don't have any We should ignore precedent. The Supreme Court is not the interpreter of the Constitution. It is uh, anyone can interpret the Constitution. States have their own interpretation of the Constitution. I've
1: seen this before where they say, well, that's why they call it opinions, because the Supreme Court doesn't get to declare the law of the land. Actually, since 1803 in Marbury versus Madison, the Supreme Court does exactly that. Um, Their comment in that brief was there is no constitutional right to a uh, abortion and we defy you to find it anywhere in the literal expression of the Constitution, which is just shows a complete um, misunderstanding, misapprehension, intentional on how our system of government works and how the U.S. Constitution works. The interesting thing about what's going to happen now at the expedited Supreme Court review is you have. Um, The Fifth Circuit now has got two cases it's sitting on, both by Pittman, one brought by abortion uh, clinics and providers. There's a whole bunch of issues there about standing. Um, And that gave that tied the Supreme Court up in fits in August when they ruled five, four, that they were not going to stay. The Supreme Court was not going to stay the enforcement of SB8 because In the majority's view, it was really complicated issues about standing and about injury and about whether state actors are really involved and whether a federal court can enjoin a state court judge about lawsuits that would be filed. And it's just too hard for us to figure it out right now. So we're not going to stay the case. That's my artist's rendering of the Supreme Court back in August. And that was a five to four decision with Roberts. So follow Roberts here. Chief Justice Roberts in the minority voting for this to to stay the enforcement of SB8 against all the other right wing people. Roberts now in the new case, which I believe the Department of Justice has eliminated, as Pittman has ruled in his ruling in his 113 pages, has eliminated all of the barriers that the Supreme Court was concerned about in August. They've eliminated the standing problem. They've eliminated the injury problem. That was cited by the Supreme Court. They've eliminated the issue of whether federal judges can enjoin state court judges. They've addressed it all in their complaint and in their briefing. So all of the excuses that the Supreme Court had back in August about why we, just, we, we, we want to do it on full briefing, we can't figure it all out. Maybe this is not the right case to, to make our ruling on. Now, they have no choice. The Department of Justice has put front and center. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. And now the question is whether Roberts can get Gorsuch or, you know, um, oh, my God, Kavanaugh to come over to his side. So this is five four in the proper direction.
0: I'll leave you with this thought um, early on in my legal career, when I would do some criminal defense work, uh, I would occasionally do favors for certain clients and family and friends, and go to traffic court um, and help people who went to had to a traffic tickets. This is like when you first first start. You always start at the at, at the lower levels and you try to grow. But this is how I started. And you would see some people make these arguments that the people of the state of California, because the the cases would be framed the people versus the defendant. But they would have this convoluted argument how the people can't uh, actually represent the government and it's unconstitutional for the government to even stop you in a traffic stop because the power that emanates from the Constitution creates it's I can't even articulate what the point was, but it's this crazy rabbit hole (laughs) conspiracy, tortured logic about how the government can't be the people. And and have a case against an individual. And they'd make the arguments and they'd get laughed out of court. But there was a group of like crazies who would make this argument. That's the Republican Party. Okay. That's the GQP right now. That are all of these theories. That's SB8. You know, that is the logic of the of the law professor from Chapman Eastman who tried to explain why Mike Pence. Um, shouldn't be able just to certify the election results. What the GQP is doing, and this is the problem with the law, to tie this episode up with a nice little ribbon, is in a, using the baseball game analogy. When you have the ability to write the rules and rewrite the rules, you know it's not a foregone conclusion that baseball is going to be here forever. Right. It's not a foregone conclusion that the sport's always going to be, you know, that the sport's always going to be here. Someone could rewrite the rules to make it, you know, to to make it something of the past. And here what the GQP wants to do is literally rewrite all of the rules to interpret law in such a tortured way that foster their view of fascism, their view of of an anti-democratic system. Um, And they really want to just overturn our democracy. And we have to depend on our umpires, our instant replays, um, the system that we created, the game. And we need to keep the game alive to perfect the game, to make the game better and not destroy the game because our democracy is the analogy to the baseball game. Our democracy is precious. It's under attack every single day. It's under attack in Texas. It's under attack um with all the things that Trump's doing and Trumpism and GQPism, and you have a Republican party, they don't care about democracy anymore. Don't care one fucking bit about our democracy. Um, so what do we do? We have to not be complacent. We have to not just be so depressed about everything. We need to fight like our lives depend on it because on the other side, the GQP, while, they have crazy theories while they're hateful and despicable people. They're out there working every single day to build up their fascist view of the United States. of America. Well, let me
1: let, let me put let me pick up the mantle of your baseball analogies. Democracy is not a spectator sport. And it's not a spectator sport for legal AF and Midas touch followers and listeners. Put down your beer, put down your hot dog. Put down your popcorn, You've, you're, you are armed with something that's really important, your intelligence, your passion, your focus. You have found a home on the Midas Touch Network for your expression, a safe space to express your opinions among like-minded people and learn information and, and news feeds and legal analysis along the way. Now you have to get in the game. Because we don't want to just watch our democracy burn. We want to do something about it. I don't get on this show every week with Ben, because I just want to hear myself talk or hear Ben, you know, talk about his past or baseball analogies, although I do like them. I do it for a reason. I do it because I want to activate, even if it's just one person out there to go down and become a community organizer, to go down to an election office and monitor something that's gone wrong, to go into the streets and peacefully protest about something that's important. It's it's easy to tweet. It's hard to be a participant on the right side of this democracy. It's a, it's not a spectator sport. Popak,
0: well said, want to thank our sponsor, Athletic Greens, AG1. I love it. Make sure you go to athleticgreens.com slash Legal AF. Get that free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. That's athleticgreens.com slash Legal AF. And also, If you have your own case, if you've been injured in an accident, a serious injury, you know someone who's been seriously injured, if you have a case, a sexual harassment case, a work case, um, a breach of contract case, a big business dispute case, Um, if you or someone you know has a lawsuit, a big case, has been injured, just feel free. Reach out to me and Popak. We're practicing lawyers. We'll review your cases. We'll let you know if we think you have a case. Popak's email is mpopak, M-P-O-P-O-K, at ZPLaw.com. That's M-P-O-P-O-K at ZPLaw.com. My email is Ben at MidasTouch.com. That's Ben at m e i d a s t o u c h dot com you or a loved one have a case or think you have a case, let us know and we will get back to you or have someone from our office reach out to you. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of Legal AF. If it is Saturday, it is Legal AF Live. If it is Sunday, it is Legal AF. We love you, Midas Mighty. We'll see you same time, same place next week. Shout out to the Midas Mighty.